Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels number 19. In the previous episode we spent a lot of time investigating the deeper meanings behind one of the most famous verses in all of the scriptures, John 3.16, and sort of reiterating to our listeners about that aspect of faith and faithfulness that comes with believing in God, uh, the God who has sent his Son into the world to uh, bring light and salvation to it. And we looked at uh, John's parallelisms between Uh, condemnation and salvation, sort of that banner in which someone makes that choice themselves to be under, whether it is the banner of life through God and His Son, or it is the banner of death through not being on God's side with His story uh, and that Messiah coming into the world. And then we left off with a dispute going on between some of John's disciples and a random Jewish guy all about uh, trying to figure out why Jesus was baptizing in the same area that John was, and then John re, re-clarifying the perspective to his disciples that uh, nothing that he does is without uh, the sovereign plan of God the Father, and that he is in indeed not the Messiah, but is his his whole purpose is to usher in the Messiah to to his listeners, yeah. his disciples. Yeah, we rather rudely just quit right in the, right in the middle of their conversation, <laughs> right? I know. What the heck are we doing? Eh, well, we're running out of time, that's all. <laughs> no, it's, it's just going to continue. We're never going to be able to fit complete stories in everywhere, so it's all good. We just join in. So, all right, they, yeah, uh, John's explaining, hey, guys, don't be upset. God's the one in control. I'm just going along. Remember, I'm not the Christ. I'm just the one who's making the way. So I'm ready when you are. Let's do it. All right. What are we in? Chapter 3, verse 29? Yes, sir. John 3, 29 says this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That, (laughs) oh, buddy, I wish I had men in my life like this guy. He is awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, So listen to what he's saying here. This is really good. First, John is declaring that the bride was never his. Okay? The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Who's the bride, Samuel? Um, Isn't Israel the bride? Israel. That's right. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John, Israel was never his. Israel belongs to the bridegroom, Jesus the Messiah. So John portrays himself, uh, how do we say it, as an important part of his little wedding metaphor here, right? But he's not the center of attention. Kind of like today, we'd call him the best man, Mm -hmm. if you will. Um, He rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. What is that about? Well, he's hearing the voice of his, you know, friend, the the groom, who has arrived and is now making covenant with his bride. That's what he's hearing. Yeah? Hmm. Cool picture. And now that Messiah has actually come and is is known not only to John, but others, his role in the story is is finished. And so so his joy is made complete. He's done his part. 
Now, here's here's some interesting stuff, Samuel. The the best man, if we can call him that, back here in this day and this age, what exactly was his role? What did he do? Well, in effect, and I know maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I mean this is going to give you a good a good picture. He was kind of like the wedding planner. <laughs> He's the one that was seeing to all of the arrangements. So that's kind of weird to us, right? Mm-hmm. But then he was also responsible for guarding the bride. Now, we might think of this in maybe the, the more intuitive sense. We might think, oh, uh, yeah, he was keeping her safe and, and you know, making sure that uh, uh, she was going to be there and you know, happy and healthy and everything ready for when the bride came back or the bridegroom came back. But the the important part, the part that actually relates to the big story and why this metaphor is good, the the uh, the friend of the bridegroom was also the one, the best man. He was supposed to guard the bride's chastity and faithfulness. He was going to deliver her to the groom. And, you know, a, a bit of a, a guarantee, if you will, a stamp of approval saying, hey, she has remained faithful to you. Now, now think about that and think about John the Baptist's role in calling to all Israel, calling them to repent, calling them to return to righteousness in God, all of those things, right? So John the Baptist, he was playing that role of the best man with Messiah's bride, Israel. It's just such a great picture. Yeah. Yeah. And for what it's worth, you might also think back to, uh, I don't know if this popped in your head or not, but think about like Moses back at Sinai. Yeah, that's that's the reason what when you asked me, who was the bride in this circumstance? That's that's why I answered Israel is because ah. I and then I would assume very Torah knowledgeable Jews think back to the Exodus story at Sinai that that is seen as a marriage when God marries yep. Israel and takes them to be his bride. I know that there's talk in the Western church as like the church is God's bride, but contextually it seems to be more accurate to treat it as israel but i mean gentiles are included in that now by faith grafted in all that kind of thing too right and and that's important the church is his bride but it's because they are grafted into the commonwealth of israel israel's the bride mm-hmm. so yeah it's good good yeah and so uh, so john says all this stuff we've got this this beautiful little metaphor here and then, of course, he ends with, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's, it's the only appropriate thing to come at this point. If the best man has done his job, and that's John the Baptist here, well, he should step aside, diminish, depart. He has fulfilled his role, and it is his joy to see the marriage take place. And then he just steps aside, steps out of view. Hmm. Now, is that not also a great picture a picture of the Christian life? Are we not supposed to get out of the way, decrease, so that Christ may increase? That when, when the church, when you and I, when anybody who claims to be a disciple of Christ when they get out of the way and the world sees more of Jesus slash God than they do, you know, Paul slash Samuel, whoever, isn't that the story? Isn't that the way it's supposed to go? Yeah, Messiah Yeshua said it himself later on, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Awesome, yeah. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a good picture. All right, so John says that. 
And then, okay, uh, here's another one of those weird spots. We get to verse 31, and, okay, are we supposed to think that John the Baptist is continuing to speak here, or is now John the writer stepping in and offering, you know, again, his color commentary, we've called it, right? So, verse 31, he says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So, uh, it's really hard to, I mean, be certain, but boy, that sure feels like quite a change in in the 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 message that's coming. And so, I kind of feel like the text, it just seems to, what do you say, it exceeds John the Baptist's character and knowledge and even the, the context, the time that they're in, all that. It, it just reads a lot more like there's somebody who's got a, a later knowledge, a greater knowledge because more time has passed and they're sort of inserting themselves back in and, you know, editorializing. It's just like back at verse uh, 16. But people will argue, you know, whatever, we may be right, may be wrong. But for me, I think John's stepping in here. So let's find out what he's even saying. So he who comes from above is above all. Okay, number one. Another one of those things we're going to keep repeating. The idea of Jesus first descending before ascending it's a really, really important recurring theme because only one comes down and that's God. And I know angels, etc. but just follow the theme here. The one that comes down, that's, that's God. So he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. Well, now let's just, just pause for a moment. Jesus was born human, true? True. Born in creation, true. Mm-hmm. Born on the earth like other men, true. Yeah. Okay. But Jesus is of heaven. Do you see the difference? Yeah, he was born here. Yeah, he was human. Yeah, all those things. But he didn't originate here on earth like we do. He came down from heaven. He is of heaven. And this is like the very beginning of the book of John, the Word, right? Mm-hmm. That whole concept. And, you know, it may have been hard for people to listen to that first episode. I know we've heard lots of comments about it, but it's so important that you see it in that light because every time we turn around, we keep going back to it. He is of heaven, not of earth because he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. If you are born of earth, like you, know, you and me, Samuel, uh, we're limited. And that's not self-limited. Remember how we talked about Jesus? He's mm-hmm. got the word, but, but he's, try- he's living as a human because he's limiting himself. Well, we're limited, but it's only because we're limited. Nothing, we're not involved in that. Mm-hmm. We can only comprehend a portion of, well, God and heavenly things, anything outside creation. In fact, as we see science continue to progress across the ages, we also know that we can hardly comprehend uh, things inside creation, right? Yeah. Uh, but we keep getting better. So anyway, uh, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth, speaks in an earthly way, but he who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is the one that is of heaven, comes from heaven, and he's above all. And it's just this very simple concept where Jesus, Messiah, who he, w- who he is, what he does, all of that, he is just superior. And if you want to learn more about that, you can read uh, all of Hebrews. <laughs> no point giving you any references because... Just read the whole book. Yeah. Jesus is superior. And he can comprehend 
all of the things of God, everything outside creation and inside creation. He comprehends it all. At least he is capable as the word, right? Yeah. There's a couple of things I wanted to add to all those great points that you have just mentioned. Um, when you had said that Jesus, he's not uh, on of earth like every other man, he is of heaven, because, mm-hmm. and we're going to that word wisdom aspect from John chapter one. Yeah. I, I know this sounds silly for me to bring this up, but I, I hope our listeners don't get that picture in their heads that the way that Jesus looked physically um, while he lived on earth as a human being, that that is like the way that he's always looked and existed, you know, and he just super, God superimposed, you know, Jewish Jesus from ages past into first century Judaism. I Correct right. me if I'm wrong. What you're trying to get across is that the essence of who Messiah is, that the essence of God's wisdom, the the tangible agent of God that creates and brings light into darkness and light into chaos, that is the one that is of heaven that, yes. uh, you know, self-limited himself and took on flesh and lived as a earthly being. Yes, exactly. That's the big point is that he was indeed born human, but if he's human and God, if he is both, the part of him that is from heaven is, you know, the God part, which we we are trusting John in his first chapter about the word, mm-hmm. the wisdom. Yeah. Sweet. And then the second thing with you saying that Jesus is superior and that he can comprehend it all, there is a midrash that says that, well, when Messiah comes in the kingdom and the world to come, he's going to reveal to humanity the eternal Torah or the true Torah that um, uh, us as humans uh, within our limitations that we can't comprehend everything because of, you know, sin and corruption and everything. But when we're given our resurrected bodies and everything is restored, he's going to show that to us. And the Midrash says that Messiah is actually going to reveal the secrets of the white spaces in between the black text of the Hebrew letters within the Torah that like yeah. there's, there's secrets to be found even within the spaces between the Hebrew letters. So I don't know. I just oh. thought that was kind of a cool thing to add. Oh yeah. I love when they do stuff like that. They have, they have such amazing ways of bringing uh, a real honor to the text you know, understanding that it is God's expressed will, you know, given to Moses. It's just so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> that is good. Okay, so uh, verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Okay, so he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. First, uh, you know what? Let's just go back and read a little bit of that. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Samuel, could you read that? Sure. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Yeah. Yet no one receives his testimony. And and he's bearing witness to what he has seen and heard. What are the things that he has seen and heard? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Heavenly things. Okay. All of those, yeah, all of those things that we're unable to comprehend. Gotcha. He's of heaven, and he has seen and heard all of that, and he's, he's bringing testimony, right? Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, here's a question. It says, no one receives his testimony. Does that mean that literally zero human beings received his testimony, Samuel? I feel like I remember stories in the Gospels where it says that many people believed after some miracle of Jesus has happened. So yeah. that can't be yeah. literally everybody. Shockingly, we find another piece of Scripture that's not intended to be literal. Yeah. Just pointing it out. Um, and this testimony, it says, uh, okay, so so his testimony is, is him witnessing 
to what he has seen and heard. So that those two things connect together, right? And what's great about it is, and and we've seen already a, mo- a number of people talking about, you know, giving uh, testimony to this or that. Um, it's like a like a legal term. But here, his testimony is the only true testimony. True in the sense that it is it's unencumbered by the corruption of this world. He came from above. So his testimony is 100% true, reliable, good, complete, all of that, right? And then, uh, this is interesting too. When it says, receive his testimony, what do you think that means? That's tough because I'm, I'm having that tension between what does believe mean you know, between mental assent versus faith and faithfulness, action, that kind of thing. So I don't know if right. part of it is getting into that or it's it's something different. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's just say if we're just concerned about the meaning of the word, like maybe in the, the Greek sense or whatever, we're just talking about someone who's mentally grasping. They They actually understand what Jesus is saying, which is kind of a big deal because we we're hardly even getting started in the Jesus story. And we've already seen a bunch of people who half the time don't know what he's talking about. Now, to be fair, it's John's way of telling stories, but it's a very real thing. And now let's go ahead and go to the next verse and see what it says, because it might actually help a little bit. Verse 33 says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, uh, I'd just like to point out real quickly, we just said, verse 32, yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony. <laughs> what? <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's, this is how we know things aren't literal. Right? We're, we're trying to understand them. And it's the funny thing is, it's so much like the way we talk. Oh, man. Here's Jesus out there telling, he's like laying it down, everything they need to hear. And just, nobody's receiving his testimony. We say stuff like that all the time. Mm-hmm. Do we literally mean that no one did? No. No. We're just saying, few did, many didn't. Right? Mm-hmm. And so it's exactly the same here. We just need to read it for what it's saying. So anyway, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So to receive the testimony goes beyond mentally grasping it. It's that uh, recognition, I guess, or or uh, I may, agreement, maybe. I'm not sure what the right word is. But you receive that testimony, you recognize that it is not just a truth, but the truth. It is straight from God. And so if you recognize that, if you really buy into it and go along with it, modify your life accordingly, all that kind of thing, it's like placing your seal on something. Now, we'll talk about that. Um, but it's like putting your seal on something. It's kind of like marking it as yours or marking it as authentically yours or something like that. The picture that you've probably got in your head, if you don't already, we'll, we'll bring it there. A letter or a scroll, right? All kinds of movies from back in the day. They'd write some little letter and then they'd uh, fold it up and then they'd light a candle and drop some wax on there, and then they'd stamp it with their little seal, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about. Why did they do that, Samuel? Why did they do that on a letter? Uh, it authenticates that the person who wrote that letter is the actual one who penned those words contained inside. Yeah. Nobody has that seal except you. It's unique to you. So if you see the little wax and the stamp and you recognize what it is, It hasn't been opened. Those are your words. It's authentically yours. 
And so, in a sense, by receiving his testimony, we are setting a seal on something. And what is it that we're putting our seal on? The fact that God is true. I, it's, it's like I'm giving my own stamp of approval for what that's worth, but I'm giving my own stamp of approval that God is true, meaning he is faithful to his word, that he is unwavering, and I mean, all of these attributes of God. Anything that is not like God is false or untrue. God represents every true thing. Mm-hmm. That's a cool picture. It is. Yeah. And here's another question. Do you think, from the outside, if someone has received this testimony and has set his seal to the fact that God is true, should people be able to see that seal? Recognize? Should be able to. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's part of the image that's being portrayed here. Understanding that we we uh, offer something visible and recognizable that God is true. Yeah, it's almost like uh, doing the things needed to get our own mess and junk out of the way, so that the aspect of being image bearers of God can shine forth like we're all image bears but we all have a part in letting that shine through well or not well based on how we live our lives and what we pledge ourselves to so it's almost like if if that seal is noticeable it's almost like you're letting the image qualities of your god likeness coming to the surface for other people to see exactly and that is That's the story of our life. Bear that image. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, John offers, I guess, kind of a, I don't know, he's reinforcing his point, gets to verse 34, and he says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. I don't know about you, but that sentence actually gets a little confusing. So let's Mm -hmm. break it down. He whom God has sent. All right. Who do you think that is, Samuel? Uh, Messiah, Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the descended word. And what does he do? He utters the words of God. Mm, How do you think we're supposed to take that? (laughs) Literally. You know, funny thing, I I think that this is probably much more literal than some people would take it. I think that Jesus was literally speaking, you know, God would speak to him through the Spirit and Jesus would just repeat what he heard. Hmm. I think it's very literal. And it's funny because we <laughs> we seem to be the guys who are always picking, hey, don't take it so literally. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is a, I think this is a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, okay, here's where it starts to get confusing. That part was easy. But now, he gives the Spirit without measure. Okay, first question. Who's the one doing the giving? God. Yes. Yeah. And who is he giving it to? Uh, well, I guess if we're, if we're looking at the subjects in this statement so far, the only other person that's been mentioned is Jesus, so... Exactly. Yeah. And what is it that he's giving? The Spirit. And uh, what Spirit without... Oh, there's not a condition to it. It's without measure. There's unlimited amount of Spirit. Yeah. And that is so important. So, first of all, I mean... Sometimes when we start throwing around pronouns and things like that, it gets confusing who's what. So it's just important. God, uh, sorry, Jesus utters the words of God because God gives Jesus the spirit without measure. Just in case that wasn't clear, it should be now. But 
I want to go back to a point we've talked about before. Remember back at his baptism, uh, Jesus' baptism, we talked about how Jesus was kind of special because he was getting the Spirit without measure, and that Spirit rested on him. Does that sound familiar, Samuel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is important, and this may be one of those times when people think I'm dumb, but whatever, I'm going to say it anyway. That's different than the way anyone else in the Scriptures, or outside the Scriptures, has experienced the Spirit of God. They all received a portion. Even somebody, you, you pick who you want, like Moses. Wow, he really, you know, that he glowed, right? Being in the presence of God, all that stuff. Uh, the disciples, after Jesus left, or it doesn't matter, fill in anybody you want, Jesus got the Spirit without measure. This is unique. Jesus, the Spirit rested on him. Now, that's not totally unique because we've seen, we've seen stories like that in the Scriptures. But for Jesus, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that Spirit without measure is also the explanation for, well, how did Jesus know what God was actually saying? How did he literally utter God's very own words? It was the Spirit telling him. That was pretty much how they communicated. All right. And then verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Okay, remember I said I kind of feel like John is the one who's speaking here, John the writer, as opposed to continuing uh, words from John the Baptist. This is one that really stands out because this whole idea of the Father and the Son. Now, I know John, he was at the baptism, right? And he heard, my my beloved Son and who I'm well pleased, all that. But just this idea, referring to him as the Father, loving the Son, giving all things into his hand, all of this speaks as something that someone with more time and more experience has witnessed more things. It's it's the kind of thing that they would write, at least in my opinion, okay? Um, but this idea, uh, especially giving all things into his hand, uh, notice we have to go all the way to Matthew 28, 18. That's way far along in the story, right? We're nowhere near there. Samuel, why don't you read that? Mm-hmm. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a very late happening, and for it to show up, at least in some sense in this statement, I think that sort of feeds my my point that, yeah, I think John, the writer, wrote this. Um, and then we even see, though, I guess to be fair to the other side, there are seeds of this in the Old Testament. And so just for... That little bit, we go to Psalm chapter 8, verse 6 through 8. Why don't you read that? Mm-hmm. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Yeah. So, uh, is it completely impossible that John the Baptist, early in the story, would have been saying something? No, that's not impossible. But seems to seems to fit with those who've lived with him and experienced so much more. Mm-hmm. All right, and you know we're almost ready to finish a chapter. Ah, this is great. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay. Do you know what I'm going to point out, Samuel? The contrast? Or did you see it? Did you hear it? Yeah, but it's not in the way that you expect. Lay it on me. He, he, has, he does two whoever's. The first one is whoever believes in the Son. And then the second one, whoever does not obey the Son. Exactly. Which that's, <laughs> Go ahead. It's not, what, it's not what you expect. Like, when you're contrasting, you would think that they would be kept similar. Right. 
And this is so important because it's telling us something. John, the writer, is equating believing and obeying and not believing and not obeying. Do you see it? Yeah, I'm having some mind explosion sounds going on inside my head right now. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's really important. Believing is being equated with obedience, which, you know, again, it sort of reinforces the thing that we've been saying across all these podcasts so far. We can't just read past this. It's too important. And so... uh Let's let's look at, at what this means. So, believing results in eternal life, and that would be our true life, the one that, that, that we were originally intended to be living, the resurrected life, the one where God's fixed everything, right? Believing leads to that. Not obeying, okay, let me stop for a second. So, believing... And I'm going to insert or obeying, right? And then not obeying, and I'm going to insert or not believing, results in not seeing life. And it's interesting that he said not seeing life because it actually, it covers two things, right? There's the life that we are in the process of living right now. Anybody listen to this podcast, I'm assuming you're alive. We are we are living a life. And if you're not obeying the son, which is just another way of saying not obeying the father, okay? If you're not doing that, you're not going to see life like true life or or that foretaste of the resurrected life and you're also not going to see the resurrection and that's not exactly the way i should say it everyone will be resurrected but some are resurrected for life <laughs> some are resurrected for judgment and whatever follows and we're not going to push that one too hard but so that's a big deal. And and also what's important about this is this is it's it's like there's there's an assumption built in here. If the not obeying or the not believing continues, right? Mm-hmm. If it continues, you're not going to see life, not now and not then. It's going to be bad. And this reminds me there's kind of a a funnish funny Jewish uh saying that uh, everyone should repent one day before they die. Mm-hmm. See the problem there, Samuel? Potentially. If you don't know when you're going to die, then maybe you should repent now because mm. you could be wrong tomorrow, right? You could yeah. be too late. So it's a cute little way of saying that you should repent one day before you die, which right on the surface makes you feel like, oh man, that's somebody who's trying to game the system, get in just at the last second. But then you realize, yeah, since you don't know, that actually is, it's just a funny way of saying you need to repent right now so that you can see life. Well, that kind of goes way, way forward at the end. Is it at the end of Revelation that talks about like preparing yourselves and Messiah coming quickly yeah. and you're not going to know the day or the hour um, and that you know it's the same concept like of course you should repent one day before you die or that you should prepare yourself because well you know we don't know what's going to happen all we have is the present time that's been given to us yeah yeah who are the people in the book of Revelation, that everything works out well for. The ones who conquer, the ones who overcome. Samuel, what are they conquering and what are they overcoming? I mean, I would say the evil inclination. Yeah. Sin and death. It's, it's, 
It's a consistent story, beginning to end. So, mm-hmm. all right, but let's keep going. Uh, what do we got here? The wrath of God remains on him. Okay, see, this is good because we've already talked about the idea of, hey, um, your situation hasn't changed. If you actually believe in him, okay, now you've got a new state change, but the wrath of God remains upon you. Well, the consequences of disobedience or the consequences of sin are what, Samuel? It'd be death. Death, yeah. The opposite of life. And so all who sin are subject to death. They're living, for all practical purposes, in death. So for the unbelieving... This just remains unchanged. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on him. So, so John the writer, he's equating, in a sense, uh, God's wrath with death. And, and here's what I mean. If, if I were to ask this question, Samuel, what is the, the ultimate end of of the law and God's instructions and all of that here on the earth. What's the real point? Oh, man, that is a (laughs) super tough question to try to sum up in a statement. Let's see. I see see Torah as ultimate wisdom and truth in that when that is lived out, you see... uh, true humanity being expressed ah true humanity yeah. yes and what does that look like we could say and and we have said it we're going to say it some more it's justice it's mercy it's loving kindness it's forgiveness all of these awesome attributes of god the law is the instruction manual for how we are to live so that as the body, those things are present on the earth, that humanity is experiencing and seeing God through his people, his body. That's the ultimate end of the law. It's, I mean, we could just say life. Life is the end of the law, right? God's will accomplished through us here on the earth. And now, similarly, if we ask, well, then what is the ultimate end of God's wrath? It would be death. Yeah, the opposite or absence of all of those things. And so, in the end, if all of those things we talked about, the end of the law, ultimately that's, that's life, then the ultimate end is death uh, of God's wrath. And so that's why I'm saying that the uh, John is kind of equating God's wrath with death. Now, it's also important uh, because, okay, what I'm saying is that right here, John is equating those two. Okay, so this particular use of the phrase, wrath of God, I'm not suggesting it's the only way that we are going to see it and that we should understand it in all of the scriptures. Not saying that. I'm just saying it's important that we don't overlook this one. We got to keep this one in mind and what it's saying here, because that helps us in our overall understanding of the wrath of God. Mm -hmm. And I think in some sense, it'll keep us from going astray in other places as well. Yeah. I just had a call back to reference in Torah where it feels like God like what you just said earlier that God's been saying the same message from beginning to end in Deuteronomy, like the whole crux of Deuteronomy is God telling Moses to tell the people of Israel to remember the story as you were about to, you know, go into the land that he promised them to not forget it. Uh, because if you do like a lot of not great things are going to happen as a result of that. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Verse 19, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God 
by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. Yeah. It's, that's the same thing you just said. That's yeah. super cool. Yeah. Oh, and and uh, I, I also feel like we've said this before, but you never know. Many of the Jewish writings, when they refer to that verse, when it says, choose life, I set before you life and death, they take that to mean eternal life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, it's so common for us to kind of look at the Jews and think, man, they were so awful or they were so dumb or whatever. I'm telling you. No, they're awesome. Oh, they knew some stuff. And just because they're partially hardened right now and they're not, you know, catching the Messiah thing, do not underestimate them. They, oh, they have so many good things to offer in their understanding of the scriptures. It's awesome. Yeah. So this is, this is a great, great story. And I, I don't know. I don't know how people are feeling. We've been in John for a long time now. We're covering a lot of stuff, and it's not moving extremely quickly. But again, it's that idea of, on one hand, it's very, very sparse in that, you know, you you don't always know exactly what's being said, and you're kind of forced to fill in details. And then on the other hand, it's at the same time very, very dense in that what John is communicating, there's so much there. And so, we're trying not to rush, trying to give it a chance to, yeah, you know, kind of like a, what do they do? Is it wine that they let breathe or age or something? Are they letting it yeah, breathe? Yeah, wine, bourbon. There we go. We're letting, we're letting it breathe. We've popped the cork and we're letting it breathe. <laughs> uh, okay, so, uh, you know what? We're going to go on. We're going we're gonna to move on to chapter four. We've got a little time and cool, whatever. See what we got. So, chapter 4, John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Okay. (laughs) That was a hard sentence. Uh, but okay. So this is a thing we see about Jesus for a big bunch of the story. Generally speaking, he doesn't want to become too well-known, too popular, and especially not too soon. And okay, why? Well, uh, Roman leadership, they don't like anybody, you know, having a a real sort of influence or following or something like that, because that's a threat. Uh, and here it mentions the Pharisees. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know if we should take this as it really was just the Pharisees, or maybe that was just John's way of, you know, saying the whole leadership, Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, the Sanhedrin itself, whatever. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but it says Pharisees. Uh, but they too, probably, uh, at least certain of them, within the Sanhedrin especially, didn't want to see anybody getting too popular. That could be trouble. But there's also this. uh, The Roman leadership, the Pharisees, and to be fair, also the Sadducees, etc. They eventually play a role in his death. And so um, it's easy to see that this is quite dangerous. If either group gets too excited too soon, um, Jesus, he intentionally avoids this. It's a bad thing. The Galilee, it's just quieter, safer, and, you know, Jesus, I'm assuming he has some sense of timing, and it's just, it's not the right time. And so, he's headed for Galilee. Now, interesting thing about the Pharisees here, uh, in the same way that I was just questioning, is it really just the Pharisees, what the Sadducees include? You know, who's all involved? There are some who think that because John is writing this, you know, later, um, that John is using the term Pharisees uh, purposely to include all of the leadership, and he's not really caring too much about which sect they belong to. And the thinking goes something like this. Uh, The Sadducees 
eventually just disappear. And therefore, uh, to refer to them, you know, if John's writing much later, to refer to them might actually be confusing, whereas the Pharisees continued on, and so he's just, uh, he only mentions Pharisees because that's the only people who are left. Now, I guess there's something to that, except that you would have to think that John wrote very late, like uh, certainly after the destruction of the temple. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of debate about that. So I don't know how much credence we should lend to something, this kind of thinking, but I I just thought it was interesting that uh, people think it, we'll get it out there and you can do whatever you want with it. And then, uh, just for fun, remember we already talked about, so was Jesus actually doing the baptizing or not? And we know back in uh, verses 22, 26, it made it sound like he was. And then here, it sounds specifically like he is not. And I guess the only thing is, at least when it mentions it here, it, it's, uh, well, in English, they've put it in parentheses, so uh, it seems to be a clarification of sorts. Um so I don't know, for me, as for me and my house, uh, I'm kind of leaning toward, yeah, he never actually really did any of the baptizing. Um, I guess the the important part, though, is the whole, the role of baptism in the story, in their lives, all that stuff. The role in general is explicitly endorsed. And so that's mm-hmm. probably one good takeaway anyway. Yeah. All right. Now? I mean, we've done some fun stuff already, but it just feels like we're building momentum. We're we're getting to, I don't know, some of these parts of the story where they're just classic, and 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 it's going to yeah. be so exciting to see what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. So we're going to go ahead and do it. We're going to get to the uh, everybody knows this is the woman at the well, but it's a really long story. So there's I don't even know if we could fit it in a single episode anyway. So we're going to have to interrupt it. But I say we go do a All little right. bit more, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, he wants to go back to Galilee. Verse 4 says this, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, or Sicker, <laughs> near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. That's pretty darn specific. Mm-hmm. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so... Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. All right. So, before we even talk about the other things, maybe to get our head in the space, Samuel, sixth hour, when is that? Um, isn't that in the heat of the day, like sometime in the afternoon? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually what we would call noon. Okay. Yeah. So it's around noon. It's the middle of the day. Okay. Okay. So I got that out there. And now here's another thing. We need to kind of understand, okay, Samaria, Samaritans, whatever. Okay. Why? What's the big deal? Why are we talking about this? Well, in the history of Israel, okay, at some point, the northern kingdom... So, so Israel gets split into two. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom, very confusingly, is called Israel, whatever. Uh, but some Jewish people get left behind when the northern kingdom is wiped out by the Assyrians. Okay? So after the Assyrians wipe them out, well, then there are some Assyrians that actually flock to the area. And so you've got these Jews left behind, you've got these Assyrians, well, they marry. And I guess in some sense, we could say they create a new people group. They end up being referred to as the Samaritans. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of similarities, like they did, they, they worshipped Yahweh, and they followed the same scriptures as the Jews, you know, Israel proper, but they're not a pure people group, and I mean... To go further, not being a pure people group may have been an issue, but they were Assyrians, you know? So, I mean, it was bad. And 
Um, the thing was that they understood some parts of the story, and, and they're really some of the very important parts of the story, people, places, whatever. They understood them quite differently from anything the Jews were thinking. So, subsequently, you got this, this tension between the two. And, and I think there's a, a racial aspect to it. There's a uh, religious aspect to it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. They did not like each other. And in this time period, it results in outright violence a lot. They don't like each other. Each group believed that they were right or superior or, you know, whatever. And so for Jesus to go this route was dangerous. And I think it's kind of funny when it says in verse four, he had to pass through Samaria. Hmm. Why did he have to? <laughs> right? Is it, you can't get there from here. Is there really only one way to go? No, he could have gone other ways. So it's just very interesting. But this route is very dangerous. Uh, mentions a place called Sychar. We, we don't really know where that is. Um, a lot of people, you know, let's just say the popular guess is Shechem. That's probably a name you remember from the Old Testament if you've read some in there. Um, and, I mean, there's good reason for it because Jacob did, in fact, own some land that was near Shechem. So that's a thing. It talks about Jacob's well. And uh, again, it's not a thing that we know for certain, but a lot of people believe that that was at the foot of Mount Gerizim, which is not far from Shechem. So, you know, you kind of put those things together. You get an idea where he's at. But then it says this, Jesus is wearied. Now, number one, let's talk about that word for a second. The Greek, uh, it it gives this idea of... uh, he was he was laboring or struggling to go on. So he sat down by the well. Now, here's what I find interesting. Did it say that he was thirsty? <laughs> nope. No. It says he's wearied. But he does sit by a well. And 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 so I think it's reasonable for us to just assume, well, he was probably thirsty too. And then you ask this question, well, why didn't he get himself a drink? Guess he didn't have anything to reach down there and pull water out from. Exactly. Most of us don't even know what it's like to have to draw water from a well, right? But he got there and I think it's, I think it's safe to assume he didn't have anything to draw with. But anyway, what's, what's funny about that is that it just says that he was weary laboring, struggling to go on, and that that's the way he introduces the story to the woman at the well. <laughs> but anyway, let's see what we got here. Well, I don't know. Oh, Samuel, decision time. Should we stop or not stop? I vote stop. Yeah, I think this is, I think we set up the the context and the setting and the place and the tone. Yeah. And we get to jump right into the next episode with Jesus' interaction with a new character. All right. I have just moved the lever into park. (laughs) Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time... We pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.